Today we are continuing the fall sermon series we kicked off after Labor Day entitled uh, Always Ready. And if you've been with us, you know what the title means. But if this is your first Sunday, Always Ready refers to a verse in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where the, the Apostle Peter challenges Christians to always be ready, to always be prepared to give a reason, give the reason for the hope within us. In other words, in our interactions with those around us, in our conversations, when people ask us what we believe and why we do certain things and why we don't do certain things, we are to be prepared always to give a, a biblical, compelling, personally thought out, personally owned answer for the reason and the hope we have within us. And the hope, of course, being the hope of heaven, the hope of forgiveness, of peace and joy and so on and so forth. And uh, we kicked off this sermon series, always ready, looking at, we're looking at different objections, common objections or questions that sometimes Christians struggle with. How do I answer this? Uh, we began with the existence of God. There's a growing sense within our culture and world that God doesn't exist. And so we looked at different indicators which uh, compellingly and convincingly point to evidence that there is a God, a creator, who put this universe and world and human beings together and created us. Uh, we looked then at the problem of, of evil and suffering, that kind of that uh, classic conundrum of how can a good and loving and all-powerful God allow pain and evil and suffering in the world? Uh, then we looked at the exclusivity of Christianity. Uh, again, the, the, the question that people often will have say, <laughs> excuse me, is, is how can you say that Christianity is the only way to God? Uh, how can Jesus say he's the only way, truth, and life? And then today we come to a a very uncomfortable topic, one that we don't like to hear about or talk about or think about, but one that's very important because we often get asked this question, at least I have in some conversations. I had a conversation with a gentleman uh, towards the end of his life uh, just recently, and that was the stumbling block for him. How can a good and loving God, how can a father send people to hell? You know, I thought long and hard about about how to introduce this message and maybe kick it off with a joke or a story to kind of lighten the, 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 you know, the, the atmosphere a little bit. But after you think about it and read about it and reflect upon it, jokes don't really seem that uh, appropriate. Peter Kreeft, a, a theologian from Boston College, puts it this way, of all the doctrines of Christianity, hell is the most difficult to defend, the most burdensome to bear, and the first to be abandoned. So whether you're just exploring Christianity or maybe you're a longtime follower of Christ, maybe as this is your first Sunday here today, you're like, oh, great, the pastor's going to talk about hell. We, we all struggle with this, this doctrine of this idea of hell, a fellow human being suffering, of, of a God of love who would create and sustain a place of eternal torment, with the idea that you know, it's, it's unfair that people who, who end up going there who don't deserve it, good people, religious people, Good neighbors, good family, good friends. And yet, despite how difficult and burdensome the notion of hell is, we, we don't abandon it as a culture. Uh, surveys consistently tell us that between two-thirds and three-fourths of Americans uh, believe in heaven and hell. According to AARP, the, the, one of their magazines, the statistics jumped to nearly 80% among people who are above 50 years old. Almost every religion in the world includes the threat of some sort of suffering or punishment or accountability for our actions uh, when our life ends. Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, most 
primitive and tribal religions all propose some sort of accountability after we die for the way we lived our lives. So for this reason, we need to ask some pointed and uh, penetrating questions about this, this idea of hell. And hopefully it will prepare us to at least solidify in our own minds our thinking about it and then also be prepared to, to talk with others who have questions about it. And so I'm going to break down our topic into three parts. What do we know about hell from the scriptures? Why is it necessary? Or another way of flipping that is how can a, a loving God send people there? And then third, probably the most pertinent one for us is how can I be sure that I'm not going there? So first, what we do and don't know about hell from the scriptures. And one of the things we have to face from the start is it's one of the most talked about topics in the scripture. Just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it once in a while. It's mentioned only a few times in the Old Testament, but throughout the New Testament, it's mentioned a bunch. All four Gospels. Um, letters of Paul, of Peter, of James, of John, the book of Revelation, all of them talk about Judgment Day and a day of accounting and, and eternal judgment. And you know who talks about hell more than anybody else in the New Testament? Jesus does. So while we might be tempted to you know, distance ourselves from this notion or to disassociate it from the person and message of Jesus, if we want to be consistent and intellectually honest, we cannot. You know, one of the clearest affirmations of the existence uh, of hell comes from Jesus himself in Matthew 25. After describing the final judgment, Jesus says that after, the, that, after that, the, uh, the uh, unrighteous will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So Jesus clearly teaches that everybody's going to be held accountable for how we live our lives and that every person will spend eternity in one of two destinations. One is described as a kingdom and a paradise, heaven, the other is described as hell, eternal fire. On another occasion, Jesus tells a story about a great wedding celebration. And uh, lots of guests are invited. And it says this in Matthew 22. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I'd like to kind of avoid that, but, you know, Jesus said that and taught that. You know, but a couple of things to keep in mind. It's, it's a parable. It doesn't mean that there's going to be fashion police, you know, at heaven. Like, oh, nope, no, suit, no shirt, no shoes, no service, not getting in. It's not that. But it does teach us something about this notion of hell. It means the exclusion throw them outside. You know, if heaven is a place of belonging, a great celebration of welcome to guests, and hell is the opposite. It's being shut out, cut off, isolated from the hosts and the other guests. Second, it tells us that it's darkness. You know, light in the Bible is most often a metaphor for, for knowledge and for truth and understanding. So darkness implies the opposite, confusion and ignorance. If heaven is about knowing God in the secrets of existence, hell is about not knowing. You know, we, we often say when a person doesn't have all the information they need, we say they're in the dark. Third, we get this idea of anguish from it. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping, of course, is, talks about sorrow. When we're sad, we weep. 
And gnashing of teeth is what we do when we're frustrated. So you put them together and it suggests regret. Knowing you made a terrible, horrible mistake and there's nothing you can do to change it. In Revelation 20, verses 11 through 14, John writes, The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So again, we have this idea of, of accountability, a day of judgment, and that people are sent to one of two destinations. And when we put this image of fire together with the other descriptions, we understand hell to be a destination for those who do not love, worship, or obey God in this life. It's a place of separation from God first and foremost, but also from other people. A place of darkness where people feel lost. A place of suffering and anguish and regret and pain. However you want to describe it, it's clearly an awful place where no one should want to spend eternity. Younger people and music fans will recognize the name Marilyn Manson. He's a leader of a, of, of, a, of, a, of a heavy metal band that goes by the same name. His real name is Brian Warner. What you may not know about him is he was raised in a Christian home. He was raised in a Christian school. But he rejected his upbringing and went on to make a name for himself with heavy metal music. It's dark and violent, sometimes satanic in its undertones. And in an interview, he says, I'm confident. Yeah, I'm going to go to hell. He says, I'm going to say it would probably be a more comfortable place for me because everyone I know would be there and I wouldn't really be allowed to do anything in heaven that would be fun. Now, that point of view is, is familiar, but, but tragically uninformed and, and eternally dangerous because nobody's going to be comfortable there. No, no one's going to be with anybody else. You'll be all alone. Simply put, hell is the absence of God. And since God is the source of all good things, There will be no good things in hell. Whichever of his gifts we have enjoyed in this life, the love of a spouse, children, satisfying work, companionship of a friend, a beautiful sunset, a walk in the mountains, an intellectual challenge, satisfying work, laughing out loud at a good story, none of them will be available to us in hell. You know, sometimes people look at this world and say, life, this life is hell. And sometimes it it is like that. But it's also sometimes like heaven, isn't it? Because God is present and active in this world. And the blessings of his kingdom are are available to us in part at times. But when we get to our eternal destinations, we'll either be with God completely forever or separated from God completely forever. And if we are separated from God, we are separated from all that is good and true and beautiful and that brings us joy in this life. In his imaginative book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis imagines hell as a dull gray town in which the inhabitants continually build new houses uh, for themselves in order to move farther and farther and farther away from other people who annoy them. And eventually they move so far away that they can't hear anybody or see anybody else. And when they're finally alone, they discover that the person they could not stand the most is themselves, and now they're stuck with themselves forever. However your imagination may process the biblical descriptions of hell, make no mistake, it is an awful destination. Now, there's some debate among Christians and theologians whether hell is eternal in duration or merely in consequence. In other words, do people suffer forever or are they destroyed forever? The traditional prominent view is 
is that hell is an eternal conscious experience of separation from God with all the attending anguish. The minority view is annihilationism, the belief that the lost will experience judgment and the anguish of being cast out of God's presence, but that the ultimate end of the lost is destruction, the second death. Whichever view you accept, the Bible is clear. It's an awful, awful destination. Next, the objection we often hear. Why is hell necessary? Why would a good God create or even allow such a place and allow people to go there? It's a hard question because we know people. We, we have love for people who have rejected Christ, who, who are not following Christ. It's a hard, difficult thing to think about. But first, hell is necessary because human dignity demands it. If there were no accountability for our actions, no rewards or consequences for our actions, then what we do here on earth really has no meaning. We would be mere animals, mere pawns in some cosmic board game. We would think our actions and choices matter, but in the end our fate would have already been determined. would have made a difference whether I do bad or, or good. But everything within us rebels against that idea. We all yearn for something beyond this life, for something transcendent. We think there should be rewards for good things. There should be consequences for bad things. We yearn for something beyond this life. Ecclesiastes 3.10 says, God has set eternity in the human heart. And virtually everybody believes that what we do and how we live matters. The philosopher and novelist, Theodore Dostoevsky said, if there is no immortality, then everything is permitted. And if everything is permitted, then nothing matters. Human dignity and purpose and meaning demand that there be a heaven and a hell. There be an accountability for how we live our lives. Second, hell is necessary because justice demands it. There's a universal sense of right and wrong in human society and the human conscience. And while the particulars may vary from person to person and society to society, there is universal agreement that wrong things must be punished and that evil must be judged. Interesting, for for example, that surveys revealed after 9-11 that the percentage of people who believe in hell jumped significantly from from 64% to 71%. And the reason, according to one survey, was because of moral outrage that demanded that there had to be there had to be consequences and punishment for such wickedness. Another example, there was a TV special about a, an investment scam that robbed people of their life savings. Retirement funds were lost completely, and in many cases, elderly people were put out of their homes and scrambling for jobs, just anything they could get to put food on the table and a roof over their heads. And when the perpetrator was sent to prison, one of the investors who'd lost money was not satisfied. This reasonable, soft-spoken, elderly person said, he's getting a little bit of what he deserves. He'll get the rest later. Our sense of justice demands that evil and wickedness be punished. So how can we expect anything less of God, whom we believe to be holy and righteous and good? A judge who let murderers go would not be a good judge. A judge who let serial rapists go or or, or, or people who uh, ordered genocide, they would not be a good judge. And a God who did not punish evil would not be a good God. 
Of course, the objection that we're going to have here is most of us are not, hopefully none of us, are terrorists or scam artists, right? We're not Idi Amin or Adolf Hitler or, 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 or some evil dictator, some serial rapist or serial killer. While most people believe there should be hell and consequences for those folks, if there wasn't, we would be upset about it. They also believe that hell should be for you know, bad people. But how do you define bad? The Bible tells us, in a very real sense, theologically, that we're all, you know, bad people. Not bad all the time. Not horrible. Not as bad as we could be. But that we consistently fall short of a holy and perfect and just God. That we consistently sin against God and other people. I know that I do. We fall short of being the people that God has created us to be. And we may not think we deserve eternal separation from God, but if heaven is a perfect place where there is no greed or envy or lust or pride or prejudice or anger or hatred or jealousy, then people like you and me would wreck it within a few days of our arrival. Hell is necessary because justice demands it. Finally, Hell is necessary because love demands it. Now, you might think, what? You see, God loves us so much and is so eager for us to love him back that he allows us the freedom to not love him back. Think about this. Every guy who's ever chased a girl knows that you cannot force her to love you. You can desire her. You can pursue her. You can do everything in your power to win her heart. But the one thing you cannot do is force her to love you. For to do so would not only be futile, it would no longer be love. It would be manipulation or control, obsession. You know, I've heard people say things like this. You know, God is often compared to a loving father. As a parent myself, I cannot imagine condemning my kids no matter what they did to reject me. I would be devastated if they rejected me. But I wouldn't send them to hell. Let's think this through. Let's say your child decides he wants nothing to do with you ever again, moves to the West Coast, cuts off contact. You can send him letters expressing your love over and over. You can send money and provisions to help them get on their feet. You can visit with him, plead with him to come home, but there's one thing you cannot do if you love him. You cannot bind him hand and foot. You cannot drag him home against his will. You cannot chain him to his bed for the rest of his life. That is not love. And God doesn't work that way. Peter Kreeft says this, those who do not wish to love God must be allowed not to love him. And those who do not want to be with God must be allowed to be separated from him. And so the answer then to the objection of why would a good God send people to hell is that God doesn't. But he will let people go there if they so choose. And it breaks God's heart. But who in their right mind would choose hell over heaven? Well, people choose every day to live their lives apart from God, to ignore him, to deny him, to rebel against him, to work against him. Every day people choose to live their lives apart from God, and God allows them to do so. And if they want to live apart from him for all eternity, he will allow them to do that as well. So, pretty heavy so far. 
But how can we know that we're not going there? How can we help others not go there? There is one way to be sure you're going to heaven. It's simple. It's clear. It's available to everybody. If you want to be sure you're going to heaven, the Bible says we need to turn to God in repentance and in faith. And turning to God means telling God that you want a relationship with him. And repentance means admitting to God that you're a sinner who needs to be forgiven and changed. And faith means believing that Christ died on the cross and rose again and is the only one who can forgive you and make you God's child forever. God's made it possible. He made it as clear as possible. We don't have to be the best do-gooder in the world. We don't have to join a secret club or go through a special ceremony. We simply turn to God in repentance and in faith. Now, I'm sure some of you might have the question in your back of your minds, what about the people who have never heard about Jesus Christ? What about them? Is there some other way that they can be saved? That's another question for another day, but the simple answer is this. It's the only way we know of is faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only way that's been revealed clearly in the Scripture. God has said in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so to think of it this way, if you're working in a hospital and a fire breaks out, and you know that there's a safe and secure fire exit, you've seen it on a map, the architect has told you, what are you going to do? You could say to yourself, well, there must be another way out of this hospital. I can't believe the architect wouldn't have provided another way, more than one way, a back stairwell somewhere that, that no one told us about. You could go looking for that as the flames get higher and the smoke gets thicker. But to do so would only put yourself and all the others in the building at risk. The only sensible thing to do would be to head toward the exit you know about as quickly as possible. And to urge everybody around you to head for it as well. And so if there are other ways to get to heaven aside from turning to Christ and repentance and faith, we have not been told about them. And so the only sensible thing to do in the face of eternity is to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to urge others to do the same. Now the Bible has a lot more to say about another destination, heaven, and we, we could do that in a different time. But I want to close with a couple of descriptions of what heaven is like. A great city whose streets are paved with gold, whose inhabitants live and work in peace. A great banquet with with food and laughter for everyone who wants a seat. A garden with trees that bears fruit all year long. A river of life running through the center. A home, a place of love and activity with a room for everyone who wants in. C.S. Lewis said this about heaven and hell. He said, All your life in unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. And the day is coming when you will wake to find beyond all hope that you have attained it, or else that it was within your grasp and you have lost it forever. You know, the thing about heaven and hell, the Bible tells us, is is that we have to choose now in this life where we want to spend eternity, with God or without him. The good news is that it's clear how to be with him forever. Heaven is within your grasp right now. Reach out and call upon the name of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us you will be saved. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word. We're grateful that you are God who, who has created us for a relationship with you. That you have created a wonderful, incredible, amazing place for us to be with you forever. And it's not your will that any be lost, Lord. And so, Lord, you, you give us clear directions. You've sent your son, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life so that we can be with you forever. And yet, Lord, we know that we have to choose. And we know that others have to choose. So, Father, give us a heart for others to share lovingly and truthfully and honestly, humbly, uh, the truth about heaven and hell. So that as many as possible, Lord, would join you for that great banquet, a day of celebration and of eternal joy. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. You're now the words of the Lord Jesus Christ as they are delivered.